Thank you, Tim. I do want to say that um, if, if you do want to be baptized, please, today's the day. I was saying to the person who's being baptized today that, you know, when you're getting baptized, you want a story, you know? Like being baptized in the Jordan River or like something, or like in minus five degrees. You know, it's like easy to be baptized in summer when it's 200 degrees outside and the water's so hot. But today's the day. So even if you have been baptized, I'd encourage you to be baptized again. Uh, we'll be doing it to everyone. So everyone's going to be baptized there, whether you like it or not. I'm just kidding. Um, but please don't rush off after church. We like to celebrate baptisms as a family. And it is one of our members who's being baptized. And so please, if you could, just for a few minutes, right after church, before you get your donuts, come outside. We're going to gather around the cattle trough because uh, that's how we do it here in Texas. And we're going to do the baptism. So don't run off. Please come and celebrate that moment with us. Amen? Amen. Great. So let me start my timer because last week Catherine was giving me a hard time about getting early and stuff. So just making sure I give you guys... Did you? Thanks. Okay. Oh, my love, I enjoyed you enjoying it too. So uh, if you're a guest here, welcome to Hope Rock Church. Please make sure you get coffee and donuts. Please also make sure you get us your information so that we can stay connected with you. Um, we're back in Galatians this morning. We're not going to waste any time. Last week, we looked at Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, which, as a reminder, recounted an exchange that happens between Peter and Paul. We've been going through it for a couple of weeks. But in case you don't remember, Peter and Paul had this interesting sort of encounter where Peter started to behave a bit weirdly. He was in Antioch with Paul, Barnabas, and the Gentiles, and he was happy to eat with them and hang out with them and have fellowship with them. And then a group of people from the Jerusalem church arrived, and all of a sudden, Peter became you know, very different. He withdrew himself from the Gentiles. And ultimately, what we come to know is that he was fearful that the Judaizers would ultimately look at him differently. He was fearful that they would question his Jewishness. And so Paul challenges Peter. And last week, we looked at three specific things from verse 15 and 16 that Paul said to Peter. First of all, what Paul was getting across to him was that the gospel in verse 15 is not a respect of persons. In other words, thinking that their ethnicity, their race, their cultural heritage somehow made Jewish people after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus better than anyone else was false. That wasn't true. Everybody now had access to the same Jesus Christ. And while before in the old covenant, the nation of Israel enjoyed a special place as God's chosen people, Gentiles were now being grafted into the vine. And so I said this last week and I'll say it again. There is no room for racism, classism or ethnicism in the kingdom of God. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. God's gospel is available to every single human being. And it's our job to take the message of the gospel to everybody, no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from, whether young, old, rich, poor, black, white, it doesn't matter. The gospel is for everyone. He then in verse 16 reminded Peter that the law wasn't able to save anyone. And we're going to speak about this quite a lot today and even next week. In fact, throughout Galatians, this theme keeps coming back quite a lot. But he said that the laws, not just the ceremonial laws, not just the festival laws, but even the Mosaic Ten, Ten Commandments were unable to save people. There was only one way that you could be saved, and that was through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he reminded him, and he reminds us, that our salvation results 
not from our faith in Christ, but Christ's faithfulness to us. Christus Pisto, that translation we spoke about last week, it's Christ's faithfulness that justifies us. And so we can take our weak, fallible human faith that's sometimes wavering and sometimes very shallow and sometimes very weak, and we can place it in the almighty faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is interceding for us today before the Father. What a privilege to be called the child of God. And that brings us to this morning where we're going to encounter another critical reality. You see, not only do we get to lean on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but what we also get to do is understand this glorious truth that it is no longer we who live, but, who, but Christ who lives in us. And so turn it in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 16 or verse 17, sorry, this morning to verse 21. So five verses and I've got 1,500 points for you. Okay, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your anointing. And we thank you, Lord, that every word that is spoken today would come under your power, that you would take these truths and make them reality to us, Lord, that you would bring revelation to our hearts today, that we would leave you with a greater understanding of who we are in Christ and Jesus, what you did for us on the cross. I pray that people would be free today, that I would be free, and that we would find our joy and our satisfaction and our comfort in knowing that you finished it all on the cross. And we don't have to strive to earn anything or to make us any better in your eyes. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we thank you, Lord, that you would be lifted up today in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read together from verse 17 to verse 21, and then we'll unpack it. Paul says this, but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. What was quite apparent is that last week in verse 15 and 16, Paul was laying a foundation. And today what he's going to do through verses 17 to 21 is he's going to start to build on the thoughts that he presented last week. He's going to unpack those thoughts and he's going to give us some foundational truths. Incidentally, what we'll also come to realize is that Paul will never mention anymore throughout the book of Galatians what actually went down with Peter. So that story's over. He spoke about it. We don't actually know how it ended. Although when we do read the New Testament, reading books like First and Second Peter, Acts chapter 15, what we come to realize is that Peter came across to Paul's side of the argument. Peter eventually saw exactly what Paul was saying and he believed it to be true. But the first truth for us this morning is this, the authentic gospel, the real gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ died for when preached is always going to be seen as scandalous. Galatians 2.17, let's remind ourselves, it says, but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ. Is Christ then a promoter of sin? Let's leave it there. You see, the most significant contention that Paul faced 
from the Judaizers in his day was that the gospel message that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles and the gospel message that was ultimately making its way to Jewish people, instead of dealing with the issue of sin, encouraged people to live a sinful existence. And honestly, that is exactly how it should be for us today. What do I mean by that? The gospel should always be seen as a gospel of grace, not a gospel of legalism. In fact, if you are criticized for preaching the gospel, people should be criticizing you and saying to you, you make it too easy for people to get saved. I promise you now, if you are hearing from people that you make it too difficult for people to get saved, there's a problem. So people should be criticizing us, saying, how can you say it's so easy to be saved? Because that's the gospel message. It's a gospel of grace, not a gospel of religion. It's not a gospel of legalism. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, does the gospel message promote sinful living? And to answer that question, we have to put ourselves in the mindset and the context of Galatians. We have to understand why is it that the Judaizers thought that it was promoting sin? And so we've got to look at the gospel through the lens of the Judaizers' Jewishness, their Jewish heritage, their Jewish culture. But before we do that, let's remind ourselves real quick what the gospel message is. Paul told us last week in Galatians 2.16, he said, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on later to say, this was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. It's not a product of the law. Salvation is not something the law could ever provide. He says this in Ephesians, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Salvation is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. In its most basic form, the gospel message is a product of our justification in the eyes and in the heart of God. It's something that Jesus accomplished at the cross. It's not something we do. It's something Jesus has already done. It happens when we acknowledge the finished work of the cross, when we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King. I say this often, but Jesus is Lord and Savior and King. Whether you're here this morning and are not a believer, He's still Lord and Savior and King. And when we acknowledge that He's Lord and Savior and King, this great exchange happens. Our sins are nailed to the cross. His blood pays the penalty that those sins demanded in the eyes of God and we receive Christ's righteousness in return. That's the gospel. And that's what makes the gospel so scandalous. The word scandalous means causing general public outrage by perceived offense against morality or law. The fact that the gospel is not a product of your morality or my morality or our combined morality, the fact that the gospel is not a product of our works, the fact that the gospel is not a product of what we do, but what Jesus did makes it scandalous because the one thing we hate as human beings is for you to take my ability to save myself away from me. We cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. Now, if you are Jewish, that revelation, that truth would turn your entire world upside down, literally. Because for your entire life, you had been taught that what you did for God, how you behaved, how you obeyed His laws, and how you kept yourself pure is what made you a good Jew and therefore good in the eyes of God. Now all of a sudden this gospel message comes and it says you're no longer required to follow Jewish customs. 
You're no longer required to not eat unclean foods. You're no longer required to obey and to honor the Sabbath. And you know what? You can even go and hang around with those weirdos called Gentiles without any reproach. You can see how the Judaizers are called, accused Paul of preaching a gospel that encouraged sinful living because all of those things that I've just listed were sinful to a Jew. And so if before the gospel you couldn't do these things, the gospel comes in and now I can do them, they thought, but isn't the gospel then removing the constraints from our behavior? Isn't it causing us to stumble into sin? But Paul's response is clear. He says, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. What Paul is saying is that when we think that the gospel promotes sin, it illustrates, first thing, a wrong view of sin. Jesus said this in Matthew 15. He said, do you still lack understanding? He asked, speaking to the religious leaders. Don't you realize that whatever goes into your mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart and this defiles a person. What Jesus is saying is it's not what we do on the outside. It's not the outside of the cup that matters. It's the inside of the cup. You can't eat anything that's going to make you sinful. You can't do anything that's going to be ingested that's going to make you sinful. It's not your outward behavior. It's what is in your heart. Sin begins in our hearts. So let's deal with the inside man. Thinking that the gospel promotes sin illustrates a wrong view of the law. I mean, here's the deal. Jesus is very clear in Matthew 15. There is no law that can prevent you from sinning. And what we do know is that Jewish people had to continuously offer sacrifices for their sin. So it wasn't like the law was preventing them from sinning anyway. In fact, once a year, the Jews will celebrate the Day of Atonement when the nation's sins are paid for. And so the law wasn't even able to prevent people from sinning. Thinking that the law or the gospel, sorry, promotes and illustrates a wrong view of who Jesus is. And I say that to you this morning because what it's saying to us is that Jesus is incapable of turning us into his image bearers. Thinking that the gospel promotes sin illustrates a wrong view of faith. You see, we love to believe that Jesus is our savior. But then it's up to us to earn our way back into heaven. And there's a challenge for us in all of this today. Because as Christians, we have the capacity to become just like the Judaizers of Paul's day. What do I mean by that? Well, it's almost as if we forget that one day, many years ago, we were saved by grace through faith. Not as a result of our works, but as a result of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then years later, as we mature into Christians, then we start to think things like, how can those people possibly ever get saved? They're too dirty. They're too messed up. God could never do anything with them. We all of a sudden become these legalists that start to put things in front of people and say, you've got to jump through all of these hoops before Jesus could ever accept you the way that you are. The church is great at doing this, friends. It's like we tell people that before you can come to Jesus, you've got to sort your life out or you've got to wash yourself before you take a shower. It makes no sense. That's not the gospel message. And I want to encourage us this morning, instead of being people this morning who are worried about how easy or how scandalous the message of the gospel is, 
Let us become the kind of people and let us become the kind of church that trusts that Jesus is enough to transform even the most unregenerate of hearts. And I say that this morning because if he could do it for me, he could do it for anyone. And if he could do it for you, he can do it for anyone. The second truth is this, the true scandal is not how easy the gospel is or how the gospel just accepts people the way they are. The true scandal is putting our faith back into the law. The true scandal is putting our faith back into our works. The true scandal is putting your faith back into your own self-righteousness or your own legalistic tendencies. That's the scandal. Paul says in verse 18, he says, if I rebuild those things, though those things that he's talking about is the law, that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. Salvation at its core is about abandoning the law, abandoning it, moving away from it, forget about it. There's nothing we can take out of it. To forget, put that thing away. It's not, we're not gonna go back to that. We're in the new covenant now. That thing is done, it is finished. And it's only once we abandon the law, i.e. our works, our abilities to do things for ourselves, can we truly be transformed. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just say for argument's sake that we decided this morning that everyone in this room was going to honor the law and we wanted to live our lives by the law. So we take all 2,000 verses of Mosaic legislation, which is distilled down into 313 commands. Do you think that if we tried to do that, it would build us up or would it break us down? The answer is it's going to break us down and it'll do that in three main ways. First of all, we won't be able to do it. We will fail at honoring the law. The Jews failed and we will fail. The second thing it'll do is as we try and focus on all the do's and don'ts and the checklist of things that we can't be involved in, shouldn't be involved in, all that will become is a bunch of religious legalists. We'll become Pharisees and we'll start pointing things out in all the people around us and say, look how messed up those people are. Lastly, it will mean that we abandon the cross in its most basic form. We will have abandoned the cross. Paul says that if he goes backwards, if he goes back to the law, then he may as well take the revelation Jesus gave to him on the road to Damascus and throw it in the garbage because that's what it would mean. Before we think that we would never be those people, we wouldn't go back to the law. We wouldn't go back to works. We wouldn't go back to our own abilities. I want to tell you, friends, we do it all the time and we do it without realizing it. It happens in those moments when our prayer life is strong our Bible reading plan is up to date. We've been attending church regularly. That we wake up in the morning and it's like the heavens open. We hear the angels, oh, it's like, oh, I'm saved, Lord, look at me. Mm. On the other hand, when we're struggling to pray, when it's been weeks or months since you last read your Bible, or perhaps your church attendance is spotty at best, all of a sudden, we're like, mm, I'm not sure God loves me anymore. Friends, God loves you no matter what you do. He loved you the moment Jesus paid the price for you on the cross. And when we think, when we allow that thinking to infiltrate our minds, what we're doing is going back to works. Because then what we are saying is that what we do for God actually matters. How we do it, how often we do it, how well we do it. That's not the gospel. And I want to tell you, friends, I struggle with that all the time. But there's good news. 
because there is a way that we can avoid falling into that trap. And it's the third truth. And that is this dying to the law, dying to works, dying to our own religiosity leads to an authentic life lived for God. Paul says in verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Every one of us in this room today, if you're a child of God, if you are a Christ follower, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, do you know that you died to the law? What Jesus did on the cross was receive the punishment that the law demanded. And he received it on your behalf and he received it on my behalf. And so as Jesus died to the law, we have also died to the law. Paul explains it differently in Romans 7, 4, but it's the same thing. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Who do we belong to? We belong to Jesus, not the law. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. This tells me that because we've died to the law, we have been legally released from all of the implications and all of the requirements that the law placed on us, even the laws we placed on ourselves, friends. And just like Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, you and I were raised from spiritual death to newness of life. And just like Lazarus, when he came out of the tomb, he had to remove the grave clothes. We, raised to newness of life, have to remove all the constraints that this legalistic life places on us. And we have to let go of all of this stuff because we've died to the law. We've died to works. We've died to ourselves. And we are alive in Christ. And when we have that revelation that that's what Jesus has done, all of a sudden, as Paul says, we can now start to live a life for God. We can start to bear fruit. That's what he says. We can live for God and we can bear fruit. In the law, we can't do that because we're chasing our tails. Outside of the law, in Christ, crucified with Him, we can live for Him and we can bear fruit. And I love the analogy or the picture of fruit. You know, fruit is something you can't produce. You can plant a tree, you can water the tree, you can put soil in the ground. But friends, let me tell you, no matter what you do, you cannot make the fruit come, right? You can't say fruit come and here it is. Jesus brings the growth. Fruit in our lives is not a product of how hard or how much we're white knuckling it or how many times we went to Bible study this week. Fruit in our lives is a product of a regenerate heart and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say this. This has got nothing to do with this morning's preach, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was wondering if I should bring this up, but I feel like I need to. One thing we need to be very careful of doing as believers is becoming fruit inspectors. It happens when we start to take our fruit template out and we look at people and we go, "Mm, I don't know if they're saved. Mm -mm, I don't know. I don't see this type of fruit. That type of fruit's not there. Mm, That mango's really small. They can't be saved. Now you might be thinking, but didn't Jesus tell us to inspect people's fruit? Didn't he tell us that we will know them by their fruit? He does. He says this in Matthew 7, 18. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. The key here is who is the them that Jesus is speaking about? 
You see, if we read this verse in isolation, you might tend to think, okay, it's up to us now to go and measure everybody's fruit, weigh their fruit, look at their fruit, determine if they're saved or not, and then make a decision. That's not our job, friends. God knows you're saved. Our job is not to question that. The them in this text we find out in verse 15 is this, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You see, here's the reality. Do you know who the them are? The them are the people who do not preach the authentic gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The them are those that tell you that it's by works that you are saved and you need to do more for the church and do more for God, for Him to love you. Or it's those other people that tell you that, listen, everybody's gonna go to heaven whether they believe in Jesus or not. That's the them. To them is not other believers. We have to inspect the gospel message at the cross and say, Lord, is this message lining up with what I know you faithfully delivered to your apostles, what has been written in the word of God? Do you know the word of God? And do you know the gospel, friends? Watch out for the them, because there's many them out there that want you to believe in something that is not the gospel, friends. The gospel is what Jesus told us. It's his blood that paid for your sins. You did nothing for it. You can't earn it. You, can't, you don't deserve it. He did it all for you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Fourth truth, we have been united with Christ through crucifixion. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's a complicated thing to understand. Let's consider what being crucified with Christ doesn't mean. Being crucified with Christ is not a spiritual experience. It's not the go goosebumps, or I said ghostbumps, goosebumps you get in the back of your neck. It's not a tingly sensation. Some people think, oh, I've never been saved because I didn't get those goosebumps everyone talks about. That's not what being crucified in Christ has anything to do with. Being crucified in Christ is not something we do. It's not about sanctification. It's not about you becoming more like Jesus. It's something Jesus did. Being crucified with Christ has got to do with what happened to Jesus, not what happened to us. But because Colossians 3 verse 3 says this, that our lives have been hidden in Christ, then because Jesus was crucified, we are by virtue of that fact adopted into that crucifixion. But we haven't been crucified ourselves. Jesus did it for us. And so what does it mean? It means this, just like Jesus' position changed the moment he was crucified and died. Think about that just for a second. Jesus was never the same after he was crucified. He left the cross dead, taken down. But what happens in the supernatural? Daniel chapter seven says, in those days, there was one looking like the son of man presented to the ancient of days. And to him was given a kingdom and a dominion and authority, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that no one can ever take away. From the moment Jesus was taken off that cross, he became the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He was never the same. When he was resurrected, he was in glorified body. He was never the same. The disciples never saw the Jesus that was. They saw him today. His position changed forever. Being crucified in Christ tells me that when I believe in what Jesus did on the cross, my position has changed forever. I am no longer dead to sin. I have now been brought alive in Christ. I am no longer under condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1, for there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be condemned anymore. My position has changed, friends, because no longer does the curse of Adam apply to me because as Adam died, I've been raised to life with Christ and I'm living and seated in heavenly places, friends. You and I are different. The old man is gone. 
we just so often take the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and turn it into some moral event where we become good people and hopefully we'll become better people. No, friends, you are dead. You've been raised to life. You are born again. You're a new creation. That's what Jesus did for us. We are no longer the same. And if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what does excite you. Maybe football. Verse 20, the rest of it says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Breakthrough, friends, comes when we allow the Christ in us to do what we can never do. Part one of our transformation is we were raised to newness of life. That's what being crucified with Christ is all about. Now something else begins to happen. There's a new me all of a sudden. It's not just me who lives, but Jesus living in me. And our natural minds don't understand this, but it's not a natural event. This is a supernatural event. He is the vine. We are the branches. One tree, us being the branches, he's the vine. We've been grafted into Christ. We are like a married couple. That's why the Bible often uses marriage as an analogy between our relationship with Jesus Christ. Catherine and I in marriage are one. We are one with Christ. Romans 8 verse 10 says, Now if, in, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. His righteousness, not our righteousness. Colossians 1 verse 27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're not the hope. We're not the glory. He is and He's in us. And therefore we can live through His glory and with His hope. Ephesians 3 16 I pray that he may be able to grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. You see, our transformation starts with us being raised from the dead. It goes on to us being a new creation. Christ in me is the hope of glory, but it doesn't end there. For us to fully understand this, and this is gonna blow your minds, I hope it does. We have to go back to the King James. Let's read verse 20 again. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's that word again, Christus Pistol, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ lives in me. This is the final part of the glorious process. It is simply this. The life of faith that we live is not something we do on our own. It's not something we white knuckle through. It's not something we have to fight through. Because like we discovered last week, our justification was through his faithfulness. Well, guess what, friends? Living a life for Jesus is only possible because Jesus is faithful in us. He does the work. His faithfulness takes our weak, little, failing faith, and he makes it firm. Now, if you are wondering, you might be thinking, but if that's true, then why do I still sin? If Christ's faithfulness is in me, then why do I do the things that I don't want to do and struggle to do the things that I should be doing? My opinion on that is that it's an issue of identity. We've forgotten whose we are. Satan hates the fact that we've been given this gospel message. And you know why he hates it? Because the gospel is the very thing that destroys Satan. It reduces his power to nothing. 
Satan hates the fact that Jesus chose you, that he loves you, that he lives inside of you. It drives him nuts. And so what does he do? He tries to discourage us. He tries to condemn us. He wants us to live a life of a subpar Christianity, not so that he can take our salvation away from us because he can't do that. Salvation has been bought at the cross. There's nothing that can happen. But if he can convince you that actually Christ isn't in you, that all of these promises we've just read aren't true, then what happens? We start to live in our flesh. And when we live in our flesh, what do we do? We sin in our flesh. We need to get better at responding to the enemy's lies. And so when the enemy tells you that you're a sinner because you sin, I want you to remind him that you're a saint, that you've been declared righteous by Jesus and his blood, and you may still struggle with sin, but you're still a saint. Nothing changes that. When Satan tells you that you are a product of what you can do for God, you need to remind him that it's not about what you do for God. It's about what Jesus has done for you. When Satan comes to you and he tells you that your identity is all about what people say and think about you, you need to go back to him and say, my identity doesn't come from people, it comes from Jesus Christ. And he says that I'm a king's kid. He says that I'm loved. He says I'm the apple of his eye. He says I'm the head and not the tail, that I'm loved, that I'm redeemed, that I'm set free. And he says that I'm more than a conqueror, friends. You see, when I live with Christ in me, I can conquer the world. But when I live in my flesh oh my gosh, I can't do anything right. But it's a simple shift. We can move from living a life in the flesh to going back to who we truly are. This is our identity. This is our position in Christ. We get to decide where we live. Do you wanna live on that side of the line or do you wanna live in who Christ says you are? Paul ends off this verse or this section by saying this. I do not set aside the grace of God. The band can come up. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I want to read that again. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The bottom line is this. If the law was able to save us, then Jesus didn't need to die. If your works were able to save you, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. If your holiness was able to save you, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. Every time we go back to the law, every time we go back to legalism, every time we go back to the set of do's and don'ts that we create, what we are trusting in is not the finished work of the cross. We're not trusting in Jesus anymore. We're trusting in our flesh to do what Jesus can only do. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week. But in Luke 22, there's a powerful picture. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. His disciples are sleeping. He still loves them. And while he's praying, what is he doing? He's sweating drops of blood. I mean, that's the kind of prayer I've never prayed. But he is sweating blood, thinking about and looking to all the things that he would have to endure as he bears the penalty for sin for the entirety of the human race. And what does Jesus say? He says this, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Now, in case you're wondering, that wasn't a rhetorical question. Jesus wasn't just making conversation with God the Father. 
But here's the reality. If there was any other way for mankind to be saved, the cross would have been avoided. There wasn't. The cross was and is and remains to be the only mechanism, not just for our salvation, but anybody's salvation in this world. And it is open to everyone. And it has to be received by faith in what Jesus did. It's the greatest love story ever told. The love story of a God willing to bridge the gap, the chasm that separated His creation from Him by sending His only Son to die. It's the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask for forgiveness, Lord, for all the times, Lord, that I've made my salvation a product of what I think I'm able to do. Thank you, Jesus, that the finished work of the cross is just that finished. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this gospel message of grace. Thank you, Jesus, that we've been freed from the law and the penalty of it. Thank you, Jesus, that you live in us. That you give us the ability to do things that we couldn't do before. Where we can say no to things we could never resist before. Thank you, Jesus, that you'd help us as a church to walk in that freedom. I pray for my friends here today, Lord. I pray, Lord, that if there's any bondage, Lord, anything that's holding them back from experiencing your freedom today, I pray you would break it today in Jesus' name. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for you. And we worship you today, our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can I ask you to stand? We're going to worship one last song. If anyone needs prayer,